You are listening to Money, Lies, and Family Ties, a multi-pronged approach to injustice in Ontario family law and mediation. My name is Karen Turkington. Chapter 1, 2001. This is war. My first encounter with the legal system came in 2001, when my common law partner and I separated after an eight-year relationship. I was aged 42, and he was aged 40. Had we not had children, we could have disentangled our lives with relative ease and moved on. However, we do have children, two daughters, and at the time of our separation, the eldest was age six, and the baby was not yet one year old. The weight and responsibility of caring for these two young lives would be mine alone. A frightening proposition, but one that I would commit myself to in earnest. I once asked him, what will I do if something happens to one of the children? To which he replied, you'll get over it. No, I wouldn't get over it. We had been living in a house that was owned by his father. He had purchased the home in 1999 for a dual purpose. He needed an office in the city where he could access high-speed internet, which was not available to him in the small village where he lived at that time. The second reason was that we needed somewhere to live. The father used a second-floor room as an office, and it was this arrangement that enabled us to live in the house at all. Initially, I enjoyed having him around. However, I hadn't anticipated the dangers of being financially enmeshed with an in-law who became too much of a presence in our daily lives. The relationship between father and son overshadowed the relationship between us, creating what felt to me like an unhealthy intrusion. While I had been permitted to choose the house, I was never included in important discussions such as how much rent we were expected to pay for the privilege of living in that lovely home. It was only after we had already moved in that the father announced the amount of rent that he would expect from us on the first of each month. At that time, it was $1,250, which was significantly more than our housing budget of $900. There had been no prior discussion between the three of us or between partner and I regarding the amount of rent we would pay. I became panic-stricken and told partner that we would have to move again but to a smaller and more affordable home. He replied, I don't think my dad will buy us another house. That's not what I meant. We needed to be separate from his father who held the purse strings and was therefore preventing us from becoming independent and creating a life of our own. It would be many years later before I learned that father and son spoke daily. For the mere two years we lived in that house, my concerns went unheeded and my worries steadily increased. Living in a home we couldn't afford preyed constantly on my mind. I was so ashamed. My concerns were met with silence, as he would simply walk away. I didn't dare raise the issue directly with my father-in-law, having never been included or involved in financial discussions between father and son. The subject of finances seemed off-limits to me, and had always been that way throughout our relationship. It felt like none of my business. Money was not a positive topic of discussion in my own family of origin, so as a sensitive topic it was quite natural for me to be hesitant at the thought of initiating a conversation about it. Therefore, constantly in the dark, 
and without the courage to ask questions, I was always guessing and assuming without any specific details to provide clarity or reassurance. Not only was I dependent upon partner, but we were both dependent upon his father and living in a perpetual state of arrears. Years later, I would read in a court document that his father never even expected us to pay rent while living there, but I was never told. So during the two years we lived in that house, partner's nine-year-old son, Edward, moved in with us full-time. Our youngest daughter, Annie, was also born during this time in early 2000, when I was aged 41. Following her difficult birth and the lingering financial tensions, I developed serious postpartum depression. Our family doctor prescribed antidepressants, but medication couldn't fix the underlying problems that continued to exist with two young children and a baby to care for. Without a support network of my own, life became unbearable. As things grew increasingly difficult, we began couples therapy, during which partner admitted to infidelities that he said had begun soon after the baby's birth. Our therapist, Elizabeth, had to practically pull this confession out of him. After hearing his admission, I felt sick and folded over in my chair to try to crush the pain in my stomach. Then he said, I don't love Karen anymore. Elizabeth, our therapist, asked him how he could love somebody one day and not the next, to which he replied, I've met someone I'm very fond of. As he spoke these words, I caught a glimpse of a smirk on his face. Well, I'm not giving up, I said. Then he told Elizabeth that I should be locked up since I talked too much, as though in a stream of consciousness, and that meant I was crazy. That evening, he showed me a photo of a strawberry blonde-haired woman in a black bra and panties leaning against her fridge. She's in her underwear, I said. Oh, I didn't realize that, he replied, as he stared into the photograph as if to double-check. How old is she? Between 25 and 35, he quickly said. He later acknowledged that she was age 25 and that he would leave work midday to go to her apartment, resulting in him eventually being fired from his job. Not long after that, a critical evening in February 2001, in which everything in our lives changed, marked our separation. While he and the children were visiting their grandfather, I stayed home so I could have some time by myself to let this new information sink in. While he was out, I saw an email from a woman addressed to him, and I phoned him at his father's home and told him to stay there overnight with the children since I was very upset and needed some space to think this through. He said, okay, which I interpreted to mean that he would do what he had just agreed to, stay at his father's home with the children for that night. I then spoke to his father and asked him if he knew about these infidelities. He laughed and said, I didn't know he had it in him. His laugh and flippant attitude angered me. Then he added, don't worry, you still have us. I then felt reassured. But within the hour, around 9 p.m., I heard the side door open and partner and our two daughters walked in through the side door. What are you doing here? You agreed to stay at your dad's house with the children. He didn't reply. I told him to put the children to bed, not wanting to have this argument in front of them. He refused. Then I told him to leave the house, and again he refused. I needed to be away from him. Couldn't he understand that? The tension escalated as he continued to disregard my need for breathing space. 
This was just one of the many times I had expressed what I needed and was again ignored. And now I was not just being ignored, but invalidated. I felt as though I was being annihilated. So whether I asked for what I needed or not, it didn't matter. I didn't matter. Nothing mattered. This was the final straw, my breaking point. Why wouldn't he just listen to me and put the children to bed? Not being heard is an emotional trigger for me. It's accompanied by the belief that I'm being abandoned and will therefore die. And that's exactly how I felt that night. I felt that my life was over. The situation turned bad very quickly and we ended up having a heated dispute in front of the children which became physical. This really frightened me. Having no one to turn to and not knowing what else to do, I phoned the police. When they arrived, they asked me how they could help, but I really didn't know what I needed from them. I told them we had been fighting in front of our children and I just needed space, so I said that I needed to leave. Partner was holding the baby, so I took our six-year-old daughter and left the house and we spent the night in a hotel. When we returned home the next day, the locks on the doors of our house had been changed. Partner, his father, and the father's wife were in the house with the baby. One of them came to the door and quickly pulled Nora into the house by the hood of her winter coat and slammed the door shut. I was not permitted to enter, nor would they release the baby to me. I was in a state of shock. Had this been a setup? Had this been their plan all along? Well, actually it had been. I would later find out from our youngest daughter that her grandmother told her that her own father and I were never meant to stay together. I had been targeted by him and his father in 1993 to provide him with a break from his wife and son. Partner came out onto the front porch where I was standing and said, this is war. You better get yourself a good lawyer. He had never expressed himself so clearly in the eight years we had lived together. I told him that we should see a mediator to sort this out. He said that his lawyer didn't endorse mediation. He had a lawyer? This is your father speaking, isn't it? No, it's all me, he said. I told him that it was unfair for him to remain in the house while the children and I had nowhere to go. Who said anything about fairness, he shot back. Who was this person? How could I have lived with someone for eight years without knowing the truth of who he was or of what he was capable? We had never become a real partnership with a shared vision. We merely coexisted. The father and son connection was the primary relationship, each the primary confidant for the other. I never fully grasped this while I was in the midst of it. I was an extra in my own life with no decision-making power, merely going through the motions. There was no place for me. There had never been a place for me. I had never been accepted or welcomed into this family. My primary role was caregiver to the children, beginning with Edward at age three. Thank you.